Welcome to the Habits and Hustle podcast, a podcast that uncovers the rituals, unspoken habits, and mindsets of extraordinary people. A podcast powered by Habit Nest. Now here's your host, Jennifer Cohen. You are a rapper, co-founded Marky Jets. You're a founder, you're one of the um, owners of Atlanta Hawks. There's a company that I that you introduced me to called Know It Foods, like back when, years ago at the at the party. Are you still involved with them? Yeah. Because you were pushing it hard. Yeah. 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 It didn't work out great, but I still am a fan of the product. Oh, okay. Because you got me hooked on it, by the way. Um, and you're obviously an endurance athlete. There's so many things about you. I don't even know where to begin. But what I love about you is that you are so tenacious. You have such chutzpah. And where does it come from? Was it something happened while you were growing up? Were you always like this? Was it a Nate thing? Are your, dad, are your parents like that? Like, what's your thing? That's, that's a really good question. I don't know what that dates back to. It's definitely in my DNA. Um, you know, when I first started out, I grew up in New York. And um, in, the eight, in the 80s, like when breakdancing and hip hop was just evolving and really coming on the scene. And I got into breakdancing and I went down... Um, I was like 15 years old. I convinced my sister to take myself and my breakdance partner, Myron, to <laughs> she just got a driver's license. And I'm like, let's go to D.C. Because I was like, there's no way the kids in D.C. are as good as the kids in New York. You know, like we invented this. Right. I'm like, we'll go down to D.C. and we'll try to make some money. So we drove down to D.C. And I remember like the whole time going down, I'm like 14 years old, thinking to myself like, what if the kids are better than us? What if no one shows up? Like, what if we get booed? And I, I was like, almost like, well, let's just turn down. I had all this like fear and feelings that I think every entrepreneur has. Like, I'm not good enough. What if someone's better? I don't have what it takes, all that stuff. Anyway, we go out there and we set up our boom box in this little parking lot in Georgetown. And Myron goes like, puts the music on. He starts spinning on his head and he passes it to me and I do my stuff and blah, 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 blah. And a crowd comes around. We take our hat off you know, after an hour or two. And we pass our hat around to collect money. And we, is this a PG or G show? You can do it. You can say whatever you want. You're good. I got to keep it real. We pass the hat around and we collect like $200 and like $30 or something. And I pay my sister for the gas and um, dinner and all that stuff. And Myron and I split like $82, $41 each. So I give him $41. I have $41 and he counts the money. And then like he recounts the money and then he runs over to bear hug and he's like, yes, we're fucking rich. And I was like, we had 41 bucks. But we, the lesson, that was like a big lesson for me. If I have to look back at, because, you know, like I realized at an early age that if you get over those fears of like, I'm not good enough, I don't have what it takes. And you actually keep going and get rewarded for it. That's like an amazing, and, and I got really addicted to the feeling on the other side of that wall of fear. So that was a big wall of fear. I knew, you know, I could either turn around and go home or I could figure out how to go through the wall or around the wall, which I did, and it felt good. So most of my successes, I've had those same kind of doubts or butterflies, and I've, you know, more times than not been rewarded. So maybe, so that, that was like a pivotal moment for you where you kind of saw a reward and that kind of progressed you to kind of keep on doing that same type of tenacity, relentlessness, chutzpah like. Well, here's the thing. Action. I grew up in an era where um, in today's world, um, disappointment 
and um, has been like stripped from kids. You know, like, like everybody gets a participation trophy. Everybody makes, yeah. you know, and like disappointment is a real part of life. And I don't even call it like chutzpah. It's just like my parents didn't, you know, it's natural now. And I'm the same way. I have four kids. I try not to like, I don't want to be disappointed. I don't want to be hurt. But like when I was growing up, if there was a baseball getting thrown at me and like my dad was sitting next to me and my mitt was down, it was going to hit me in the face. He let it hit me in the face. <laughs> and so I won't even call it, you know, it's just like it's the way that I kind of grew up. And um, I think it was a gift from my parents. You know, it, they didn't really give me everything. They gave me a lot, but they let me figure a lot of stuff out by myself. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. I think you're totally right. I have two kids, same thing. And in these days, it's very much, it's kind of creating soft kids in a way, right? Because people don't, they're so, parents are so afraid of the kid failing that they, I, I'm with the kid, with my kids also, with their soccer teams. And I, I, me and you are very, I think have a lot of similarities. That's why I've been so fascinated by you because when I was growing up as well, my parents wouldn't, I, I failed all the time. But that creates character. That creates resilience, right? And that's yeah. the only way to create resilience. I also learned, like, I don't like to fail. Um, well, no, no, yeah. no, no. Some people, like, it's okay. They tried. It's the effort. You know, like, my brother said to me the other day, I was talking to my brother, and he was asking me how the summer was going. And um, I said, you know, this was actually last summer, but um, it, was, it, it got reminded of it a minute ago. But... He said, you know, I said, he asked me how my son was doing in swim. He's on the swim team. I'm like, well, you know, he's he's a really good swimmer, but like, he's really not that, you know, into, he doesn't try that hard. I wish he tried harder. And my brother's like, well, as long as he's happy, you know, and I'm like, actually not. You know, like my son would be happy playing Fortnite and eating Haagen-Dazs every day on the couch. So it's not like as long as he's happy, it's about like getting him to understand his potential and try to get, you know get motivated to tap into that potential. And, you know, like I, my parents incurred, they praised my effort. Like everything was about effort in my house. You know, it wasn't like they encouraged me to try. It wasn't about failure. It was about effort, trying, you know, and it was never like, oh, that was a great game. You guys won and you scored so many points. It was always like, I loved watching how hard you tried. It was so great to see you guys play together, all working together so hard. And, you know, like that tone and that is a lot different than what I think is happening right now. So, um, you know, look, I'm not a parenting expert. I'm a work in progress with my kids, but that's something that stuck with me from my childhood. So how do you motivate? How do you motivate? Because you're right. All these kids now, it's all about the iPad, right? It's about video games. Are you, do you kind of, is your whole approach lead by example? Like if they monkey see, monkey do, if I do it, they're going to eventually want to kind of be the same way. What do you do to kind of get them off of that? You know, I know you're no parenting expert, but still, like, how are you doing it? If he doesn't want to play uh, or doesn't want to swim, what are you doing to make him? I think it's a, ser- <clears throat> it's a series of things. For, okay. for starters, it is definitely trying to lead by example. I include my kids in conversations about, you know, big races that I have or projects that I'm doing or the struggles I'm going through to, to how I'm pushing through them. They see me outside every day. They see my pace. They see my friends. Um, they, you know, they, they get a sense of all that stuff by watching me. So that's really important. And I'm aware that they're watching. But the second thing is like, I really encourage them to try things. Um, they don't have to love it. 
And if they try it and sign up for it, they have to stick it through till the end, till the end. They don't sign up again next year, but if they commit to it, they have to, they have to do it. And, um, and I don't run over to them when they fall. I don't right. run over to them like, or, or even like, you know, and not, I'm not in, insensitive to, to that. Or if they fail, um, I listen, we talk about it, but like, you know, I have four kids with my first kid. I did with our first child. It was like, Oh my God, you skin your knee. I got to go bubble. Oh my God, let's call the doctor. You know? And I'm like, now it's like, you know, and I'm really hands off on it. And then the other thing is, you know, kids are very scheduled today, overscheduled baseball and this and after school and they have to play date. And da, da, da. like when I was growing up, my mother would take me to, with, to a meeting uh, she was on. She was on the board of ed in our district school school district, and I'd sit for three hours with a box of like crayons or toys, or I'd have to figure it out at home if she had stuff to do. It was right. like I had to figure it out. So she put me in a position where I, you know, um, I didn't. Grow, it was like I grew up and I had no access to anything, or I, you know. But she put me in a position where I had to figure it out. Right, exactly. She didn't solve my problems by saying, oh, you're bored? Let's watch 11 hours of Netflix. (laughs) And when you're done, I'll make you popcorn. So I really try to have my kids do that. And it's not easy. I'm not great at it. And they watch plenty of Netflix too. But in general, that's important. You know what I found really interesting about you as well? I saw a video that you did, which I think, you know, for people who are usually at, who's had as much success as you have, it's all about structure and routine, right? They're very much about their habits, right? And their hustle, but a lot about like being very on point. You said a whole thing about you think that that's when you get stuck in a a routine, it's kind of like being in a rut. And you, I, I really thought that was very, it was, it was just very unique by what I was just saying, and that you don't get better at anything if you keep on doing that. So first of all, like, so does that mean someone like you don't have a a routine, you don't have particular habits that you stick to on a day-to-day basis? No. So as you get older, it's really hard to create newness. So you want, I'm turning 52 because we live in routine and schedule and we play defense. Our calendars, our whole life is defense. Our calendars fill up with meetings, appointments, scheduled weddings, anniversaries, charity events, other people want advice. And like you're playing defense. And, you know, I completely flipped that model upside down. I, I try to play as much offense in my life as I can and prioritize as much of what I love to do with the people that I love to do them with. So, um, you know, you have to work at that. If you don't work on creating newness and live in routine, you know, you're in like a time, it's like you're fast track. You're going to be 70 before you snap your fingers. And, um, and you won't have a lot of experiences. And I, I have habits. I have routines. I try to add as many winning habits and routines to my life as possible, but I don't live in routine. I don't live in a, in a scheduled, you know, like I just bought an RV, um, you saw that. like on a whim online. And like four days later, I was driving my kids, you know, now that's an extreme example, but, um, you know, I, I try not to, uh, to do it. And let me tell you something, Jen, I, I have, I actually have a system that I've put in place. Um, I call it the, it's called the big ass count. I've actually have a program. I saw that. It's amazing. I teach this whole thing. It's called the big ass yeah. club where you actually lay out your year and it for in advance, 12 months in advance, but 
I actually map out one big life-changing thing that I do every year and five little mini adventures, things that I wouldn't have normally done you know, uh, on a Saturday. And, and instead of watching the Alabama football game, I might take my kids fishing or go for a hike or whatever. So at the end of the next 30 years, let's just say I stuck to that routine, which is still introducing new things, but it's a routine. Um, from, from 40 to 70, I, I would have 30 like huge things that I've done and, and I'd have 150 adventures that I wouldn't have had by the time I'm 70. So that's what I, I mean. Like you have to, you have to plan stuff like that. Right. Otherwise you're going to be 70. The average American gains two and a half pounds a year from 30 to, you know, 35 to 65. Now you're 50, 60 pounds overweight. You can't do the shit you wanted to do. And, right. and you're 70. I didn't see I just climbed the top of Mount Washington uh, last winter in the fucking snow. I didn't see any 70 year olds on top of the mountain. Like our window is so short to do the stuff we want to do. If you're in routine and you don't plan that stuff, it's going to be too late. Right. You know, I saw that. Yeah, you do that with a bunch of friends. You kind of like take a bunch of, you take a gaggle of people and you kind of go climb that mountain. Yes. I like, <laughs> I like to do things with my friends. I see that. I mean, like, so you have to have a very particular kind of friend or like you just coerce people. Like, is Sarah, I don't feel like, Sarah doesn't seem like you you guys are similar in that way. So you have to coerce her probably like, hey, we have an RV. We're going to go, we're going to be doing that for the summer. Or she didn't go with you on the, she didn't climb Mount Washington with with you, did she? I get to buy the, she'll go on a (laughs) trip. I'll go to the opera. Yeah. (laughs) No, she, she loves it. She loves you know, every year she does this challenge with Richard Branson that he has stride. Yeah. Um, she does something. She has the same kind of philosophy. and She just does it in her own way. So, okay. So get back to this. So then basically you say that you, you, you structure. So your routine is basically a little bit different, but still a, stru- still a routine. You just plan in advance. So you're basically embedding new challenges, new things yearly. So you kind of experience as much as you can in your lifetime, which is kind of about your build your own life resume. Is that the, the other? Yeah, I like to, you know, I, I really believe in that, in not traditional resumes, but building a life resume. And again, just to be clear, I have routines and habits and, you know, like, and I try to make them good routines and try to introduce new winning habits all the time. In fact, almost every month or two, I try to pick one thing that I introduce into my life that's new. For example, I don't drink a lot, enough water. So this month, I'm going to start drinking 100 ounces every day. That would be a new routine that I, I'm going to try to do forever. you know. Um, and then in two months, I might add another routine like I'm never going to be late to another meeting. So I'm always kind of taking inventory. Uh, I'm going to write that down, and I'm going to hold you to that one. That's cool. I, was, I, was, <laughs> I said in another two months, like yeah. 60 days. All right. Um, but yeah, I think, I think, you know, again, I have, I definitely live in a, in a framework. I have a structure and a, I don't, I would call it, you can call it a routine that I follow, but I'm always trying to add winning habits and I'm always adding things into my routine, you know, to create newness. When I say, so I just want to be clear. So, so no one's talking uh, two different things. When you just do a routine, like I'm going to take two weeks off, and every year I'm going to go to the, I'm going to go to uh, the beach in Miami for those two weeks, and uh, you know, and I'm going to work till eight o'clock, and it's a great, and that's great. I'm going to go to the gym every day. 
Amazing. That's most people. All I'm saying is, instead of going to Miami, maybe you want to go and learn something. Or instead of, you know, maybe on Wednesdays, you say, you know what, I'm going to carve out an hour. I'm going to take a cooking class or I'm going to go learn. You know, you have to create some newness. Gandhi said it best. Learn like you're going to live forever. Live like you're going to die tomorrow. So, you know, I really try to follow that. So give me some of your, ha- your, your daily habits that you kind of have. And then we could talk about the ones you've kind of in kind of brought in, like your water one, for example. What do you do? With- yeah. So they're no longer habits because I've been doing lifestyle choices. They're not even, they're just lifestyle. lifestyle. Know, let me be clear about this. They're not discipline. Discipline to me, like, of course you want to be disciplined, but it also connotates deprivation. Like people think if you have to be disciplined around not eating chocolate that like, or, or, you know, losing weight you're, or I don't know, what's a good example, whatever it, 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 they relate that to like some sort of deprivation. Deprivation never works in the long term. It just doesn't. If you feel like right. you're, after a while, you're like, I'm just killing myself. Give me the damn chocolate cake. Right. If it's a lifestyle style decision and it's like, it's unwavering, it's not like a chore. I just went for a run. I didn't really want to go for a run, but that's what I do every day. It's not, it's unwavering. I exercise. It's part of my lifestyle, who I want to be. I mean, so it's like, it's not, there was no discussion in my head, even though I really didn't want to do it. It was never like, well, take today off came into my head ever, never. Right. So some of the things like, and this might sound extreme, but it's not when it's part of your lifestyle. You know, um, on the diet side, I only eat fruit until 12 o'clock noon every day for 30 years. Um, what kind of fruit do you eat? Can it be any kind of fruit? Any fresh fruit. But I say my prayers before I go to bed and when I wake up. That's, that is a daily routine. Uh, an example of something that, you know, I didn't do maybe 20 years ago, but I do do it now. Um, and that's, you know, I... Drinking more water, that's a routine. Um, Planning out my day the night before. People talk about morning habits and morning routines. Morning routines are important, but I don't think they're as important as evening routines because you really need to start your day the night before when you map out what your day looks like. I'm just following the script today. Like I planned my day last night. So, you know, I don't think I, because I don't think at this age I can just wake up and wing it. People at the competition's too good. I can't wake up and be like, Hmm, what should I do today? Like at work and you know, what am I gonna do with my kids? Like I need to, I need to have it out. Otherwise the day will probably get away from me. So, so I believe in that's a routine every night. I lay out what my day looks like the night before. So what about all this endurance stuff? Have you always just been very like into exercise or when did it kind of start to become such a big part of your lifestyle. I mean, we're not talking about, you're not just like, you know, going for a daily jog down, like you said, down the street, you're, you're climbing Mount Washington, you're doing all sorts of like, I saw you with Wim Hof doing that whole thing with him back a few months, like five, six months ago. You're like very, you do a lot of hard things, you know, when did that whole thing start? Well, I grew up, I was suburban athletic, you know, like, okay, yes, yes, yes. not like, Better than the kids in the city, or like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, my own in the suburbs, kind of athletic. Yeah, but I wasn't a runner. In fact, when I graduated college, 
Um, when I was in college, uh, a friend of mine told me he was running the New York Marathon. He was like a junior in college. I was like, what? It sounded impossible. Like you're running a New York Marathon? So like when I graduated, I was like, let me see like how far can I run? You know, I could run like two miles. And um, I wor- actually worked my way up to two miles. And I, I said to myself, well, if I can get to like two miles in 18 minutes or under, I'm a runner, you know? And um, I ran the New York Marathon I, a couple years later. I said, I'll never do this again. I decided to do it next year just because. And, um, and then I was like, I'm never, I'm going to do this every year until I'm 50. And um, a couple years later, I saw I did a 24 hour event running race with five friends. We were part, of, we were a relay team. You run a mile, Jen. I run a mile. My friend runs a mile. And then they, you keep going until, you know, whoever has the most miles as a team wins. And there were a handful of people that were doing the race solo. They didn't have a team. And I was, I was, I was floored that someone could run a hundred miles. Yeah. 24 hours. And um, what was it, what even floored me even more was the fact that they didn't look like an Olympic, Olympic athletes at all. In fact, most of them weren't even impressive, physically impressive. And I said, you know what, if they can do it, they're doing that because they just don't stop. It's just a test of like will, pain, threshold, and, you know, stubbornness, patience, like all the things that weren't like about like, you know, like I'm never going to be in the, I can't even dunk a basketball. You know, that'll never change. This, if I could change the way I could handle pain or I could, my, my willpower, I got pretty good willpower and handle obstacles and gut it out. Could I do it? And like the, the playing field is completely level. So I took a two mile goal. That was my goal and ran a hundred miles nonstop and nothing physically changed from the two mile mark to the hundred mile mark. My legs are the same, same lungs God gave me. I'm not very strong, but I've completely changed my approach mentally on how to attack this. And, and, and I did it twice. So, um, that was my, did did you do that before Dave Goggins lived with you for the, for the book before that whole thing, you were already an endurance athlete, right? I ran a hundred miles before I ever met him face to face. So then what, like, in what, like, why did you think to yourself, okay, I'm going to have this guy, you know, like how did that whole thing even happen where he even moved in with you? Dave Goggins, I mean, he's like a, a crazy badass, right? How did he, how did that whole thing happen? Well, nobody knew. I mean, very few people knew who this was. His, this was like 15 years ago. Right, nobody, nobody knew who he was. Nobody knew. I didn't know who he was. There was no internet. We weren't, I mean, there was no social media. Um, I just saw him at a race. He looked like he was, you know, impressive, obviously. And I just kind of, I reached out to him and I met him. I liked him. Um, I thought I could learn a lot from him and what makes him tick and asked him to come live with me. And he did. And, you know, he lived on and off, you know, in, with my, me, me and Sarah. Uh, he was in our life for several years, not just 30 days. And, um, and then, you know, obviously I wrote a book about our journey about five or seven years after he even stayed with me. So, um, Oh my gosh. It was that long after. Yeah. Yeah. So I just, it, it, it not, it was like, I didn't invite him over to write a book. I invited him over because I liked him 
and you know we were friends and um yeah and then so what were the top three things that he made you do that was like the most like awful like physically, emotionally, mentally, because I know you, you you said you slept in a chair, that that kind of like stuff like that. Were the couple? Give me some few other ones. Well, it was just it was just never ending. I mean, it was just every day, and I asked for that. Yeah. Um, challenge after challenge. You know, um, we ran four miles every four hours for forty eight hours. That was hard just because it was freezing. Uh, when we, where we did it, we did it in the mountains in the middle of the winter in the snow. Uh, we jumped in a frozen lake. We cracked the ice and jumped in the lake. We stayed in a sauna until I basically passed out. Um, we ran, you know, we did, I did a thousand pushups in a day. Um, when he first came to my house, I was doing like 20, you know? Um, so all, all these different things came into play. It's unbelievable. And like, so, it, and then, and so, you, I can't believe you wrote the book that much later. I didn't realize it was so much after the fact. And then with your other book, when you went to live with monks, like what kind of possessed you to live with monks again? Like why you keep on putting yourself in these like very um, difficult and, you know, very, yeah, very hard well, you situation. Know, I, like I said, I'm a big believer in building your life resume. Um, I, I, I want to milk life as much as I can because I realize in 20, 30 years, 30 right. something years, I'll be in my 70s. So like my window to do stuff, it's like, it's shrinking so fast. And I'm aware of that, very. So, um, you know, on my quest to just do things that are interesting and learning and fun, I thought like I have invested so much in the physical side of my, my life. Like I have trainers, you know, I've run races, I got equipment. But I've really not invested anything in the spiritual side of my life. And part of being an entrepreneur is figuring out how to get from point A to point B the fastest. And I was like, well, who are the spiritual masters? And I was like, monks. So let me go live with the monks. You know, I don't learn well, no, with no dis disrespect, just my learning style from podcasts or reading books. I don't retain stuff well. I learn by throwing myself in the fire. You know, like I want to learn, you know, like I didn't read a book. I wanted to learn how to free dive. I, I had an instructor come. I went from holding my breath for 32 seconds. By the way, there's no correlation between uh, being an endurance athlete and how long you can hold your breath underwater. So I thought I'd be able to hold my breath for like two minutes, three minutes underwater. They held my head under the water. I flipped out 31 seconds. I tapped out and I'm up. Two sessions later, I'm holding my breath for three minutes. So, oh my gosh, through the experts, through the, the monks of the world, the free, the Wim Hofs of the world, the Navy SEALs of the world, you know, you can really accelerate the, the, entre the greatest entrepreneurs of the world. You want to read a book about entrepreneurship or do you want to go live, work under, you know, under Warren Buffett's tutelage or under, right. you know, uh, Bezos or, or any of these guys that have, you know, Elon Musk, whoever. Um, right. you're going to learn a lot faster than reading 50 pages and taking notes. You know, Absolutely. the greatest gift that I got from Marquee Jet, Marquee Jet was a company I started yeah. when I was 29 years old. We had no aviation. It was a private jet company. We had no aviation experience. We had no airplanes. Four years before it, I was a kiddie pool attendant. And we grew that company into a $5 billion company. We sold it to Buffett's NetJets. 
And the greatest gift from the company was not the wire that they sent when we sold the company or the EBITDA numbers. Those were all great. The greatest gift was for me at 30 years old, we flew 4,000 of the who's who of entrepreneurship, pop culture, athletes, entertainers, and I was obsessed with their lifestyle. You know, and any opportunity that I had as a young kid to ask them, how do you guys live? What are your routines? What, what time do you get up? How do you live rich? What do you do with your money? What do you do with your time? How do you vacation? What do you, do you have a chef? You know, like, um, how do you learn? Who are your mentors? I would ask them. And I got like all of these different pieces of information, living with the monks, having a seal come live with me. These are all part of the, the same journey from when I was 30 years old. I just have, I got more chips in front of me that I can throw at it. Mm -hmm. But even when I was 20 and I slept on 18 different couches, friends that put me up when I was trying to make it in the music business, bouncing from friend to friend, Mm -hmm. you know, like didn't have an apartment at the time and friends were putting me up. But even then when I had, you know, not a lot, um, I was always experiencing, I would take the train to Jones beach in the winter and do a cold plunge. I would go to a seminar. If there was something in New York, there was a free concert or speech or something going on, or you know, I would I would go, I would volunteer, whatever. I would go. I remember going to um, Jack Walsh had a um, seminar. I'd never been to a, a speech. I never heard a public speaker in my life, and someone somehow I got there, and I didn't pay to go. And I just remember like, whoa, whoa, man. Like this guy's just dumping 50 years of best practices and I'm getting, and, and you know, I was doing those things and now I'm just doing them on a bigger level. Right. I mean, the Marky Jet story, wasn't it? I, I saw something again. Can you talk about the story, how you were, weren't you like doing something where you were taking people and people who are really wealthy and you're giving them really amazing experiences. And so some, somebody you, you were working on, someone wanted like Christine Aguilera to come to her, to the party. Right. Can you talk about that? Tell the story. It's a great yeah, story. We had a company called E-Superstars and yeah. we would, we would, we would get anything that anybody wanted to do. We would try to, we would make happen. So if someone wanted to play golf with Michael Jordan, we would figure out a way to make it happen. You want to go backstage to the Rolling Stones concert? We're going to figure it out. We, we had people like we're ball boys uh, or bat boys at the World Series, like crazy stuff, man. And um, someone called me up and said, hey, I have a friend of mine. Uh, his daughter's having a sweet 16. She's a huge Christina Aguilera fan. I was friends with her manager at the time. I don't remember his name now. Anyway, somehow we hooked it up where she was able to go. They got great seats with their friends. And somehow they got her on stage, like back, background singer with the mic off kind of thing. Like she was yeah, able, yeah, yeah. able to like participate on one of the things. And it was like the talk of the town. And the next day, the guy called me up. He's like, look, I don't know who you are or what in the world you do, but if you need ever need any help with anything, you know, let me know. His name was Jim Jacobs. He was the president or CEO of this company, NetJets. They did private jet travel. And I said, great. It was like, whatever. A year later, we start Marque- this company called Marky Jet. We need 650 airplanes. Jim, it's Jesse. I don't know if you remember me. You know, with the Christina Aguilera, I'd love to talk to you about your airplanes, man. And they were our partner. 
That's amazing. I mean, it's great how you leverage. So it's basically you're you're really a master at leveraging relationships and networking. I mean, that's kind of how you. I'm a master at putting myself in a position where I can attract luck, where anyone oh. can do it. Like I am a good. I don't. You know, I am a. a I, I don't leverage things because I never really ask anybody for anything. But I always, when I was between the ages of twenty to fifty. I always, I never said no. If you want right. to Nick tickets, when I wrote the Nick song, Go New York Go, I was 22 years old and I had no money. And, it, and the song became the number one most requested song on New York radio. So when the Knicks go to the playoffs, my song is banging all over the city and all my friends are like, well, Jesse's going to be able to get me tickets. And anybody who called me up for tickets pretty much, by the way, I didn't get, they didn't give me tickets. The Knicks paid $4,000 to buy the song, I sold wow. it. It cost me $4,800 to do the song. So I lost $800. And everybody thinks I, they, like I, they gave me, they gave me 300 level tickets. That was our deal. But oh my I, God. I, never said no. I put my credit card out and I got tickets. I wanted to be known as somebody that could like get anything done, you know, but I never did it be, and call people back. Hey man, I got you Nick tickets. Can you get me U.S. Open tickets or can you get me – I never did that. Right. Never. You can ask anybody in my role. I, I never I, I never ever do that. But I've never said no either. So I, I wouldn't say I'm a leverager, but, you know, and I love doing stuff like that. I wasn't doing it because I thought, oh, in 10 years I'm going to need airplanes or I'm going to – I was like, I like doing it. You know, and I built a crazy network, off the charts network of of friends and you know um, connections, and um, I invested a lot, Jen, in keeping those relationships. When I was 22 years old, I wrote 10 letters a day because there was no email, there was no internet, um, there was no internet, and there was no social media. So the only way I could like leverage relationships or build my network was to either show up somewhere, meet people, Mm -hmm. or I would write letters. So for a 10, you know, 20 cent stamp, I I sent 10 a day, 3000 handwritten letters to anyone that impressed me, influenced me, moved me, touched me, helped me. Um, I was inspired by, and that was my, and, and, and that was my marketing plan. And, you know, even to this day, people still talk about, I still write them, by the way, not as many. Um, but that's what I, I've always done it. Yeah, that's a, I, I know that it's, 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 a, it's a nice added touch, right? Because people are too lazy usually to do that extra step. So when you act, when, when people do it, it stands out, right? Um, what do you, can you give people some advice? I, I think the networking is a really important piece to a lot of this. How now everything is very saturated, right? Like every this, like even if you're on social media and you're very popular in social media, it's very hard to penetrate through that wall because people get so many DMs. And there's so many like it's very difficult. Can you give people beside how can people get in the door? Like what are some like you know easy or I shouldn't say easy? Some smart strategies that people how people can network now or kind of take their yeah network now so i think the first thing is consistency so if you sent three texts or dms a day 
for the whole year, you'll send a thousand. 365 days, three. If you send 10, you'll send 3,000. So if, you know, that's a whole lot. Now, not everyone's going to respond to you, but some people will. Right. So a lot of people get discouraged after 40, 50, but go send 3,000. So, you know, I call it the three minute miracle. It takes me 45 seconds to send a text to someone or a DM. So, three minutes, I'm sending three a day. That's a thousand a year. So, that I do do that. The other thing is, there's an art form. There's an art form to how you wordsmith emails and DMs. You know, like I might, if it's an important email or an important DM or important text, I could spend up to 45 minutes on an hour, maybe even, you know, because when you get interviewed, Jen, they ask you questions, you're on the spot. You, you got to answer right then. When you write an email or a text, you can pick the words, you can look up words, you can sit on it, you can reflect, you can get people's opinion. You're in control. So if I'm going to write an email that I want to get a reaction, I put myself in the seat of the recipient. And I say, if I got this, would I respond? And what would make me respond? Because most people only care about what's in it for them. Yeah. So you send me a DM and says, hey, I don't want money. I don't need, you don't need to invest. I just want to pick your brain for 15 minutes. Well, what the fuck is in it for me? Right. Now, of co- a couple of times I'll do that and I'll, 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 you know, I will, I'm glad to help. And I do open my doors and I do a lot of, you know, big seminars that are for free, all that. But I can't spend 15 minutes with somebody. I have four kids. Right. Know? Right. So, so. You got to think about like what would make the person react. Ego, a, a, not a win-win, a no-lose, and a no-lose is an I'll enter you for turn for you for free. That's not like a no-lose. That's like more work for me. I got to vet you and right. Um, but I will really wordsmith it. The first thing I do is I focus on the subject line. Is it catchy? Is it funny? Will it draw them in? Will it make it open? It will stand out. Does it look like spam? And then I'll make say, how do I make this email as short as possible? Ask for whatever it is I'm asking for. Make it easy for them to say yes, like in one click or one response, not like call my assistant or what's a good day for me to call you back. None of that. And I'll, and I'll sit on it and I'll, I'll read it again in the morning, having it chance to let it just digest and then I'll hit send. So I do that now. You know, like if I'm writing an email and and I would say almost once a day, I will and if you want to ask me what I'm a master at, it's not leveraging stuff. It's emails and and meetings. Like Mm. Jen, I can go into a meeting. There's probably going to be I don't know, there's 200, 300 million Americans. There's probably, I don't know, man, like when there's coronavirus, maybe like oh, 10 million meetings a day or something. I don't know, <laughs> like 50 million meetings a day. I don't know. Right. A lot, a lot of meetings, a lot of meetings. I don't lose in meetings because I, I can control, the, I can, I can, not all the time, almost. Mm-hmm. I walk into a meeting. And I say, um, I don't know, let me think about this. Guys, hey guys, I walk in. First of all, I'm not sitting when they meet me in the lobby. I'm not low energy. I'm standing because I'm excited and I don't want to get up. I got to adjust my suit or my thing or 
What do I look like? I'm standing and ready to go. I go in the meeting and I say, hey, Jen, oh my God, I had a crazy night last night. Before I even start, my parents are at my house and my parents are, my dad's 90. So I had to help him get his pajamas on and get him ready for bed. And, um, you know, it was just, and then he needed extra blankets and it was just, I'm just glad to be here because I had a crazy night last night. Now, that took me 20 seconds. It has nothing to do with, with the pencil I want to sell you or the right. way. It took 20 seconds. But in those 20 seconds, I've already told you, without you even knowing, I'm loyal. I'm a family guy. My priorities are right. Taking care of my parents, you know, no matter what, even though it was a long day, I'm going to still, my priorities come first. Like, Without even me telling you anything about me, you now know everything about me. You didn't even ask. I won the meeting. I don't, That's a good one. I don't know if to establish credibility. I don't. I already told you without you knowing what you want. And I'm not being sneaky. No, I know. No, I'm not like bait and switching you. Oh, Jen, I see you got a running watch on. Are you? Are you? I'm a runner too. This is a crazy thing. I'm running this race in three weeks called the it's the Murder Mile in Tennessee, which I am, and you know I'm exhausted today because la- blah, blah, blah. I've already told you so much about me, and we didn't even start. No, it's amazing, right? So you're, I think you're you're basically like um, you're also making them you're putting them at ease, right? Because right away you're very friendly. And you're t- you're 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 off your you're kind of like taking their guard the guard down by kind of because- always because listen yeah. I got a 980 on my SAT how am I going to go into when I'm a 28 year old kid trying to sell tell somebody that I want to start a private jet company and I have no airplanes the first thing I got to do is they have I'm the business plan they now the only thing they can bet on is me. Right. Well, I got to I I know that going in. I got to sell them on me, my enthusiasm to the project, making them feel like, man, this guy's going to figure it out. I don't care if he has any airplanes. You talked about no foods. I said right. I don't I don't invest in things anymore outside of my own projects, but when I invested in that company, I had a, a, a team of advisors that I would that would vet investments for me. Right. So I sent this over to him and um, they, they, the guy sent it back and he said, absolutely not. This is a pass. And I said, why? He said, the CEO, the founder has no experience in the food industry. The price is too much. Mm-hmm. They have no idea. They've never done this before. And this whole list of things, which by the way, sounded a lot like me. Um, and I said, well, I said, um, Jim, have you ever met the CEO, the founder? He said, no. I said, okay, wire the money. Because I looked at the guy and I was like, this guy is never going to say no. He'll, like, no matter what, he's going to figure this out. I don't care if he has no experience. That would have been great. Wire the money, man. Because in that one meeting, his passion, his enthusiasm, his personality and all that stuff, and, and, and so that's what I'm talking about. And it reminded, and also it reminded you of you. It reminded you of you, how you were when no one, when you were that person, you know, when you were like buying, I remember I, I, another thing, like we were at a TED talk conference, you couldn't get in, you wanted to talk to those people, you 
basically went to like Starbucks and like bought all the donuts and you know what I mean? Like you, you had, you always had, you kind of always like showed perseverance and tenacity and you thought, and you are a nobody. So you took, you see that in someone else and that basically I think resonates with you and it kind of, that's probably why you took a chance on it. Yeah. You know, I never thought of myself as a nobody. Um, no, I don't, I don't mean it like that. You know, no, no. I want to just explain this for people that are listening. I never, I always thought, I always walked into a room and even though I didn't belong in some of the rooms from a experience, maybe even intelligence perspective, I knew that I had something that I could offer that nobody in there had. And I didn't know what it is. I still don't know what it is, but I always had like, like I used to walk into my, my office when I was sleeping on my friend's couch and I had a partner and we would go in, you know, I meet him in, at our office. I, it was his office. And I'd be like, man, we're millionaires. They just haven't paid us yet. <laughs> you know? So I never felt, I never, I just, because a lot of people think where they are today, that they're going to be stuck in that same, you know, balance sheet or same net worth or same bad relationship or whatever forever. I never felt that way. I always knew something. I know, like, I'm not going to be a kiddie pool attendant my whole life. I'm going to figure this shit out. And I'm and I'm I'm not in a rush because I know I'm not I'm not going to go through my time on Earth. I have there's too much I want it too badly, so I never thought of myself during any of those years. Even when I got dropped from the record label, eleven uh, publishers passed on Living with the Seal before a small imprint took it. It became a number one bestseller. I got rejected from every record company until finally someone signed me. You know, um, I got, I didn't get into the, the top five schools I wanted to go get into in high school. I never thought during those moments, oh, it's not going to work out for me. And I was disappointed, of course, but I never felt like it's over. I was like, man, I'm going to show these fuckers, man. That's amazing. I, I love that you, you obviously had desire and passion, but confidence. Now, do you feel like confidence can be, uh, if you don't, if someone doesn't have that confidence, like you obviously had it, it was innate in you. Can some, how does somebody, um, in your opinion, of course, build that confidence, kind of like get to, get to that place where they are, they're, they're not, the self doubt isn't taking them over. It's not confidence. I want everybody to understand this. It's a standard. It's what is your standard? So I, I don't, let me give you an example. I give speeches. I'm a public speaker and I get booked and I don't want to be a public speaker. I want to be the best public speaker. I want to leave the conference as the highest rated speaker they've ever had. That's not confidence. I'm not confident. That's a standard. I don't want to write a book. I want to write the best book I can possibly write uh, ever. That it's not confidence. It's a standard. I'm a dad. I don't want to be a good dad. I want to be the best dad I can be to my four kids using every ounce possible of my soul to make that happen. That's not confidence. That's a standard. I, I am not a confident guy. I have mega high standards that I want to hit. 
And that's I like that. So how did you become, because you are a really good speaker. I mean, I think you're, you have, it's, it's captivating. How did you, how did you craft that? Did you hire someone to become that, to, to help you become that really good speaker? Or what was your, because that, your, your career obviously evolved, right? You went from a rapper to like, a, to the jet company, to this things, you know, there's so many different, you're like a chameleon. You keep on like, as you grow, you keep on evolving. Do you, who, who helped you become such a good speaker right now? Well, I started out when my book came out, I got asked to speak to 40 people for free. And I said, absolutely. I mean, I don't, Which book? The, the, the SEAL book or the month book? The SEAL. I'm like, okay. I mean, I don't have to pay you guys to come. You're going to, I can just actually come and speak. Like, oh, all right. <laughs> I show up and the guy's like, there's no microphone. They're all sitting around. No one knows who I am eating their donuts. Like who the, who's this guy? And the guy said, speak slowly and loudly. You have 40 minutes. I said, okay. And I spoke. And when I got done, uh, he came over to me. He's like, that was unbelievable. You know, he's like that. People really liked it. I was like, oh my God, thank you. And one person in the room called me up and said, can I book you for a speech? What's your fee? And I said, what's your budget? $2,500. And I said, that's exactly my fee. <laughs> there, And then two people... And then two people from there booked me and um, reps after reps after reps. And a year later, I'm on stage in Miami in front of 35,000 people at the, at the Marlins Stadium and, you know, um, rated very high, knock on wood, you know, and then, and then Tony Robbins, you know, it just, it just evolved. And um, I don't know. I enjoy, I love it. I think that's why. I just, I absolutely love it. Well, you also seem to go to the best for everything. We you know when you wanted to, you know, uh, was it like you were trying to get your memory better? You, you hire some memory guy to come help you guys. When you're trying to, every time you you seek out something uh, that you want to get better at or take it to the next level, you get somebody in that world, like the monks, Dave Goggins, whatever it is. So who helped you? Who was your person for this, you know, this phase or that no one. You just did it yourself. Um, it's my story I'm telling, and it's 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 these things are so baked in me. When I started out, I thought you know I like to incorporate humor. I took a public speaking class in college, and I remember the teacher told me four things. Um, I got to remember the four things. <laughs> she said, "Open up with an icebreaker, preferably humor. It doesn't have to do anything." have anything to do with what you're talking about, but I like to have an icebreaker when I open up a story or something like when I walk into an office, okay. the same process, right? Right. That's the first thing. The second thing is tell people um, what it is that you're going to be talking about. People like to know where, the, where they're going. They want to know what they're going to follow along. Three is deliver on that promise. And four is leave them with actionable takeaways. And if you can entertain people and accomplish those four things, you're going to have a pretty good, a good speech. These are my life stories, my life lessons, the, the good, the bad. And because I've had so many different experiences in multiple business, businesses in music and Zico coconut water and private aviation and the Atlanta Hawks and writing books and living with, you know, going to Wim Hof's house and living with monks. I have a lot of, a lot of things that I can share. The more you experience the more you have to offer. And I have, I'm rich in experiences. So then just by definition, I have rich in offerings. 
So, you know, and it was just trial and error. Like anything else, started really small, try to get better, reps, reps, get better, get more comfortable, see what works, see what doesn't work, craft it, craft it. And I'm not the best. I just said, and I'm not claiming to be the best. I'm just saying my stand, that's my standard of what I'm shooting for is to be that. Well, you're great at it. I got to tell you, you are. You're great at it. Um, can you give us some, uh, because, well, before I even say that, you're doing now another thing, right? You're doing the radio, like the 24-7 content, right? Yeah. When is that? When, so it's all content, right? It's podcasts, it's music, it's, what else is it? It's like, a, it's everything. It's like a smorgasbord of content, right? Yeah, it's a 24-hour live stream called BYLR Radio, Build Your Life Resume Radio. <laughs> That's a combination of hit music, podcasts, original shows that we put together, and interviews. And it's amazing. When is it launched, though? Uh, we're launching it in July and towards uh, not an official date. Apple's a little backed up on their apps right now because of the coronavirus and everything. But yeah. um, I'm, I'm hoping like mid-July. Wow. Okay. And then can you give us some, a few... Muscle up there. Let's do it. Okay. Can we do it? Yeah, we can yep. talk about it for sure. I love it. I love it. Because um, every I, I got to say, like a lot of the, like before people would always say to me, you would love this guy. Like, oh, that told me like you would love him. He's so what he's like a male version of you but forever. OK, so then when I started like following you and like knowing about you, everything you said, even in this podcast, whatever, it's like it hits home. I mean, and you do it with such passion and like and it's amazing. It's like such a. The chutzpah, and it's just amazing. I really, I really appreciate. I really appreciate who you are. I really do. Thank you. No, you're welcome. Um, and that's like a side note, but uh, a couple of actionable items for people to build their own resume because a lot of people don't have access. Let's say to go to Wimboffs or to do this or you know to really kind of get to that level. How do people build, start building their own life resume in a more of a mo modest way? Yeah, well, I, think, I think the number one thing people can do is put one big thing on their calendar in the next 12 months that you normally wouldn't have done. So like one year defining thing. And, you know, um, if I were to ask the listeners or you, Jen, what'd you do in 2012 that was big? Like, what'd you do eight days ago? You'd be like, I have no idea. Because like we right. just live in that routine you talked about. So you want to have one thing that's like, whoa, oh, in 2012? You know, I ran a hundred, like you want to be able to go and point to it kind of right away. You know, last year I did a hundred mile race. Two years before that I did 29 or 20. Like I, I can go back pretty much and, and do it. Um, and, you know, last year I took my son to Mount Washington, which is a, in, in um, Maine. Oh my God. Where's New Hampshire? Uh, New Hampshire. New Hampshire. And, yeah. um, and we're camping out. In the snow, it's like minus five degrees out. We have a minus 20 degree sleeping bag. We're bundled up. There's 7 billion people in the, in the, in the world. And it's just like me and my son and his friend and his, my friend and his daughter. And um, it was like incredible. And it cost, I think it cost $13 to park there at Mar Mount Washington. You know, like, okay. no, I'm just saying like it didn't cost... It cost nothing. Exactly. It was a cheap trip, is what you're saying. Bag, a pair of shoes. You know, we hiked up, we parked, we drove, and then we we drove. And like, so, 
you know, of course, it's easier if you have means and resources. But there's plenty of things you can do. You can jump in a cold ocean. You can go camping. You can go fishing on the Hudson River. You can. There's a lot. Um, so I just encourage you, you know, anyone listening, to do one big thing a year. And then, the, and then, how do you? And so, incorporating the other habits into what you're saying, the water. How's it going for you, by the way? Are you drinking the hundred ounces of water? Yeah, I'm not monitoring it, like, um, but I'm drinking a lot more than I was. A lot more. Um, and then you just kind of, I like the other thing that you said earlier, which is like you kind of embed new thing, new winning habits to your routine that you're already doing. Yeah. And that could be, that doesn't have to cost anything, right? Is there? Right. You know, I actually, uh, I wish I had one here. Um, I have a calendar. I, I, I teach this in a program called the Big Ass Calendar Club, but in I have a calendar that's like custom made. I spent a lot of time putting it together that has these trackers on it. So it has like every month a line for your new daily habit. It has what's your big thing. It has like, and um, so I have a system that I use. Like I said, um, I don't just wake up and wing it. I'm yeah. very, very aware of it. And it might sound goofy or hokey or whatever, but it works, man. I, I have big years every year, big. And how, so if people want to get involved in this big ass calendar. Where do they, is it just on your yeah. website? On my on my website jessieitzler.com or on Instagram at jessieitzler right. in my link in my bio. Okay, and all right. So if if people are interested, they should go check it out. I want to try it myself. Um, well, I think that's basically. I think I kind of like took up enough of your time. It's been about an hour. I don't know how long you you kind of like uh, you know carved out for me. So I appreciate this, but. I have, I have one other thing. When you come to LA next, would you do this live like how it normally should and we can like walk on treadmills? If you keep that treadmill at a real low incline and a moderate pace, I'll consider it. What are you talking about? You could run a hundred miles. What are, you t- you could, what are you talking about? Oh, I know, I know. Well, this was great. I'm glad we got to do this. This was great. I'm, re- I'm really happy. It was great talking to you. And how do people find you if they want to be inspired by all your stories of life and and um, and then some? Um, at Jesse Itzler on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and jesseitzler.com. It's pretty simple. It's pretty simple. Your energy is infectious. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Bye. Habits and hustle, time to get it rolling. Stay up on the grind, don't stop, keep it going. Habits and hustle from nothing into something. All out, hosted by Jennifer Cohen. Visionaries, tune in, you can get to know them. Be inspired, this is your moment. Excuses, we ain't having that. The Habits and Hustle Podcast, powered by Habitnest. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. 
Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's going to push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.